Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today we're discussing the chilling case of Martha Moxley. The suspected killer had been convicted of her murder, but his recent release has now called into question what happened. Let's get into it. The death of a young person is never easy. We say things like, their life was cut short, and they had so much more to offer the world. For Martha Moxley, those things were indeed true and more. Martha never got the opportunity to grow up and change the world. Her legacy was ripped from her, taken by force by a selfish individual who felt entitled to her. Nearly five decades after her life ended, Martha's name has become synonymous with violence, and her killer walks free, leaving her family to advocate for her justice. In the summer of 1974, Martha Moxley and her family moved to Greenwich, Connecticut. Their new home was in Belhaven, an affluent, gated community in the heart of the state. The Moxley family had moved from California, where Martha and her brother John had been born and raised. Their father, John David, was a partner in a corporate accounting firm, and their mother, Dorothy, was a homemaker. Both were loving parents, and the family lived a seemingly charmed life. At school, both Martha and John excelled. Martha, in particular, was very popular. She made friends quickly and had an outgoing and vivacious personality. In the fall of 1975, Martha was a Western Junior High School sophomore. Martha got good grades in school, she was athletic, talented in various arts, with an affinity towards drawing and sketching, and had even been voted the most popular girl in school in her yearbook. Those who knew her said Martha was kind, confident, and easy to get along with. She was upbeat and friendly, and was often surrounded by friends. Martha was also family-oriented. She didn't mind spending hours and hours with her family on trips or at home. However, like most teens, she wasn't perfect. Sometimes she would miss curfew, sneak a beer, or get caught smoking cigarettes. However, by and large, her parents noted she was a good kid and didn't have any concerns about her. They trusted her ability to make good decisions and felt she was responsible and level-headed. That summer, she made a new group of friends that she'd met at the Bellhaven Club within the gated community. With her new friends, they hung out at the pool and played tennis. According to her diary, it was there that she met a boy she was dating, but the relationship was very innocent. In the fall, Martha had just gotten her braces off, and she'd also tried out for the cheerleading team at her school. Her diary revealed her excitement for both of those events. Bellhaven was a very secure, exclusive, gated community. Anyone in and out was checked by security. Crime rarely occurred there, and it was assumed to be highly safe. All the neighbors knew each other, and all the kids seemed to get along. It was the kind of neighborhood where parents trusted other parents and felt that they had each other's backs. If kids were hanging out in the community, 
it was regarded as completely safe. No one could predict what would happen the last weekend of October. The likelihood that it was one of their own would tear the community apart. The night before Halloween, October 30th, was known as Mischief Night to the teens of Bellhaven. That evening, Martha was supposed to be grounded, but begged her mother to let her go out with her friends, and Dorothy Moxley agreed and let her go. Mischief Night was supposed to consist of innocent pranks, phone calls, bell ringing, maybe even toilet paper in a couple of trees, nothing serious, and nothing that would cause damage to others. Martha left that evening around 6 p.m., She was accompanied by a somewhat large group of kids from the neighborhood. She left the house with her friend Helen and was due to come home at her 10 p.m. curfew. Dorothy stayed up waiting for Martha to come home, and once Martha's curfew had passed, she called over to Helen's house to check in and ask if Martha was still with her. Helen said Martha wasn't there. Helen had left the group around 9.30, and when she left, Martha was still at the neighbor's house, last seen with the Skagel boys, 17-year-old Tom Skagel and his younger brother, 15-year-old Michael Skagel. After the call with Helen, Dorothy was sure she would see Martha crossing the street to come home. As the hours passed, she eventually fell asleep sitting beside the window, waiting. The following morning, Dorothy checked Martha's bedroom and noticed the bed had yet to be slept in. She raced around the house, and when she couldn't locate Martha, she called the police. She knew right then that something was deeply wrong. The police, however, weren't initially concerned. They reassured Dorothy that missing teens usually turn up at a friend's house, but Dorothy knew Martha and something wasn't right. She and her son John decided to go door-to-door to ask neighbors if they knew where she was. The first place she went was over to the Skagel house. The father, Rushton Skakel, was a widower with seven children. Rushton was the brother of Ethel Kennedy, wife of John F. Kennedy. Tom Skakel answered the door and told Dorothy he had not seen Martha since the night before, and neither had his brother. Dorothy continued knocking on doors and calling friends to no avail. Soon the entire neighborhood would be out looking and calling out for Martha Moxley. A classmate of Martha's made the horrific discovery while cutting through the Moxley property. Underneath a spruce tree was a body of 15-year-old Martha Moxley. Martha lay face down in a pool of her own blood. Her head had been bludgeoned with a golf club and she'd been stabbed in the neck. The golf club was mostly recovered, having been shattered into four pieces. However, the handle was missing. It was revealed that Martha's jeans and underwear had been pulled down to her knees, but officials have stated that she wasn't sexually assaulted. Detectives speculated that Martha had been attacked only 200 feet from her front door. The first blow appeared to have been to her jaw, signifying she had faced her attacker, but evidence showed she'd been taken by surprise. She didn't have many defensive injuries, and the initial blow to her face had likely rendered her unconscious. There were drag marks from the initial attack site to under the tree where her body was found. The golf club was then likely broken into pieces, and a sharp portion of the shaft was used to stab Martha to death. No one heard or recalled hearing any screaming, but several neighbors reported their dogs barking from 9.45 till about 9.15pm. Trees on the property shielded Martha's attack from the view of Dorothy and other neighbors who could have witnessed it. There had only been one street lamp nearby, and it likely would have been quite dark. The discovery of Martha's body sent shockwaves through the community. Police were called to the scene, and they uncovered a bizarre clue during their initial investigation. The golf club used to bludgeon Martha belonged to the Skakel family, matching a set found there.
the media went into a frenzy once the Skakels became involved in the investigation. Though the Skakels didn't share the name, the Kennedy connection drew wild media attention. In addition to the family being wealthy, well-connected, all in their own right, Rushton was the heir to a coal empire. Detectives put together a timeline of Martha's last few hours. Based on reports from friends, Martha arrived at the Skagel home with her friends Helen and Jeffrey at 8.45 p.m. Michael Skagel was the one who opened the door, and the four hung out for a while before Tommy arrived. Then the five hung out until 9.30 p.m. when two other Skagel boys invited the group to a cousin's home nearby. That is when the group starts to disband. Michael asked Martha to go over with them, but she declines. Jeffrey walked Helen home and Martha stayed at the Skagel house with Tommy. Investigators determined Martha had been attacked between 9.45 and 10 p.m., and both brothers had solid alibis. Tommy, who was the last person seen with Martha, told police he said goodbye to her around 9.30 p.m., and then he went inside to complete a school assignment, and then watched a television program with their live-in tutor. Similarly, Michael told investigators he was away from home between 9.15 p.m. and 11 p.m. at his cousin's house, and his story was corroborated by his cousins. In Martha's diaries, she revealed that both Skakel boys had been flirtatious with her at some point. She'd been practicing driving, and while in the car, Tommy had put his hand on her knee twice, which she had pushed away both times. She also said that Michael had been drunk and, quote, made an ass of himself. In her diaries, she doesn't appear to have reciprocated any romantic feelings for either boys. Still, that evening on October 30th, Helen remembers Martha and Tommy being playful and flirty with each other. Other friends revealed seeing Tommy and Martha go off behind a fence, and the two were later seen kissing around 9.30pm. Tommy became a prime suspect and was interviewed by detectives. Initially, detectives had been allowed to do a cursory search of the Skagel property. However, when it became clear that Tommy was being investigated as a suspect, Rushton stepped in with a small army of lawyers and stopped cooperating with law enforcement. After that, a warrant was never obtained and law enforcement never went back to the home. Rushton Skakel eventually hired private investigators to conduct their own investigation. Allegedly, this was to assess any potential risks to either of his sons. As both boys had alibis, Greenwich investigators were forced to look elsewhere to 23-year-old Kenneth Littleton, the Skakel family's live-in tutor. Those in the Skagel household claimed Kenneth was outside at 9.45 p.m. to investigate a noise and returned around 10.25 p.m. Investigators dug deeper into Kenneth but found no reason for him to want to harm Martha, as the two had never met. Littleton had worked at the Skagel residence for less than a month before the murder. However, he stated he'd seen disturbing behavior from the kids he was supposed to be a companion to. He said he learned quickly that Michael was already developing issues with alcohol. He said once he discovered a chipmunk that had been killed with a golf club and pinned to the lawn with golf tees pierced through its body. He said he approached Michael about the chipmunk and asked if he'd done it. According to Kenneth, Michael responded, quote, Who else could have done it, Kenny? Though it needs to be said that Kenneth Littleton isn't the most reliable witness. Year after Martha's murder, he was fired from his job and harbored a deep resentment towards Rushton Skagel. He'd been fired because the eldest Gagel's kid's grades had gone down, and he had a series of substance abuse issues, he was hospitalized after attempting suicide, and it would take him over a decade to get his life back together. 
Without any solid evidence, the case went cold until 1991, when the case was reignited. In 95, investigators discovered leaked documents from the private investigators that Rushton Skakel had hired. Documents revealed that Tommy and Michael had lied to Greenwich investigators during their initial interviews. Michael revealed to his father's private investigators that he'd not gone straight home at 11pm, and instead he went over to Martha's house, climbed a tree, and masturbated outside what he believed was Martha's bedroom window. According to Michael, he used to go around the neighborhood peeping into windows to, quote, jerk off. He said this was the first time he'd gone to Martha's house, and he hadn't initially realized the room he was at wasn't Martha's, it was her brother's. In the documents, it was also discovered Tom had last seen Martha closer to 10 p.m., not 9.30 p.m., throwing out half an hour of his alibi. Tom initially denied kissing Martha, but eventually stated that he'd kissed her and the two had made out for a while before she went home. Both now had provided reasons as to why their DNA may have been found either on Martha's body or near the crime scene. Also, Michael's main alibi had been Helen, who had stated she saw Michael get in a car and drive away from the Skakel home. Helen was discovered to be a close family friend, and no one else could corroborate an alibi for Michael between 9.30 and 11.30 p.m. A new witness also came forward, claiming Michael had confessed to Martha's murder during his time at the Elan school, saying, quote, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. The school was a private institution that was part rehab, part psychiatric treatment facility. Michael was sent there after he caused a severe car accident while driving drunk. However, these claims were never substantiated, and the witness that had come forward died of a drug overdose before his statement could officially be taken under oath. In 1998, a grand jury ruled that there was enough evidence to arrest Michael Skakel for the murder of Martha Moxley. The theory was that Michael had a crush on Martha and that he went into a jealous rage when he saw Martha and his brother Tommy kissing. He then lied in wait for Martha to go home, attacking her with a golf club from his house and killing her. In 2002, audio recordings made by Michael Skakel were leaked to the prosecution. The recordings were for an autobiography Michael wanted to be written, and the audio recordings were used to shop around to different publishers. The unpublished book was sent to be called, quote, Dead Man Talking, A Kennedy Cousin Comes Clean. In the recordings, he detailed what he remembered from October 30th, 1975. The recountings closely resembled what he'd said to his father's investigators, but also revealed that he'd been drunk and had been smoking pot, and he said that he'd been sexually attracted to Martha and, quote, I wanted to kiss her, I wanted her to be my girlfriend, and I was going slow, being careful. The truth is that with Martha, I felt a little shy. I thought that maybe if we spent the evening together at my cousin's, something romantic might develop between us. After that, he went back to claiming that he'd gone to his cousin's house. However, the recording further cemented the theory that Martha's rejection and seeing Martha kissing Tommy may have been the trigger that set him off. On January 9th, 2000, Michael Skakel was arrested and charged with the murder of Martha Moxley. He was released later that day on a $500,000 bail. Initially, he was arraigned as a juvenile due to his age at the time of the crime, but a judge later ruled that due to the severity of the murder, he should be tried as an adult, and his trial began on May 7, 2002. 
Four weeks later, on June 7, 2002, Michael Skako was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Several appeals were lodged, many of which were unsuccessful. While incarcerated, Robert F. Kennedy wrote two books supporting his cousin's innocence, also subsequently going on a media tour to promote his books, but also to promote the belief that Michael was scapegoated into taking the fall for Martha's murder. I never heard about this murder until 1983, which was eight years after it was committed. I never knew Michael Skakel. I didn't know any of my Skakel cousins. I met Michael Skakel for the first time in 1983, which was eight years after the murder. My family had almost no interactions with the Skakel family. One of the kind of the, the foundational myths of this whole uh, orthodoxy that has been created around this murder is that Michael Skakel is a Kennedy cousin. If you were a, back in your prosecutor days, right, and just sort of strip away the names and the relationships, if this file came across your desk with the evidence that was used against Michael Skakel, right, as a former prosecutor, what would you have done with that file? You couldn't prosecute this case. There was no... Michael Skakel had an airtight alibi. He was 11 miles away with five eyewitnesses when the murder was committed. So he had never been a suspect. He was a tiny little kid at that time. Michael Skakel's name never came up on the list of possible suspects. In 2013, a judge granted Michael a new trial, and he was released on bond. Still then, the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated the original conviction, and he was remanded back into custody. However, in 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court reversed the ruling overturning the conviction. In 1975, the original investigators from Greenwich PD were noted as inexperienced in investigating this type of crime. It's unclear how much of the evidence had been preserved correctly. At the time, Greenwich wasn't known for many murders, and so when dealing with a case of this magnitude, having inexperienced law enforcement working the case could have been detrimental. Best chance of my getting this parole is to admit guilt to this crime. But again, ten, ten and a half years later, I, I can't do that. I did not commit this crime. As far as re-examining evidence, it is unclear if the clothing worn by Martha was ever re-examined for DNA, or if it might be worth exhuming her body to see if any new forensic evidence can be found. Keeping in mind, her body had been dragged 80 to 90 feet, and there should be DNA left behind from the killer. Accusations of special treatment for the Skakel family also plagued the original investigation. Once the murder weapon had been identified as coming from the Skakel home, proper search of the property was never conducted. This seems to have been a huge lack of judgment from law enforcement. A key piece of evidence was also never found. It was the golf club handle. That piece likely holds key evidence that could directly point to the killer by way of fingerprint or TNA. There also appears to be several pieces of evidence missing from the original case file. Photographs from the autopsy were catalogued but have since disappeared, along with other pieces taken by the medical examiner. This case gets more and more mysterious. Missing evidence, bumbled police investigations, and accusations of special treatments all in what appears to be an effort to protect a killer. Which begs the question, who is worth protecting? Or rather, whose reputation is worth protecting? And how much money does it cost? And whose pockets are deep enough to afford it?
And with me now is Dorothy Moxley, Martha Moxley's mother. Welcome. Thank you, Emily. What's your reaction to Michael Skakel when he said that to you outside of court last week? Well, I was, um, I was very surprised that he would come up to me. And I um, remember thinking, I have not any idea what to say. Mm. And so I think the best thing is not to say anything. Um, my first thought was that this was planned. I don't know why. But then um, afterwards I thought, well, this is a typical Skakel kind of thing to do. Um, his father would have done that type of thing. Mm. I mean, they just feel as though they're, you know, they're... Uh, within their bounds all the time, and it doesn't make any difference what they do. And it certainly got a fair amount of press afterwards. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you, in your heart, believe that they've charged the right person with this crime? Mm. I do. I really do. And what has led you to mm. that conclusion? Oh. Um, well, the murder weapon came from the Skakel house, mm -hmm. and um, that was the last place she was seen alive. Uh, after a few months, they stopped cooperating. And why would you stop cooperating if you didn't have something to hide? Mm -hmm. And then um, in recent, uh, in the last few years, since about 1994, um, we have been able to talk to people who have gone to rehab centers with Michael. And um, we found out more about his personality and um, we've heard from... Now, I have not personally heard what these people have to say. I they, never, told the, they allegedly told the grand jury that he confessed while he was at this Elon school in, in Maine. I understand it's something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what. Now, will that be allowed, though? Do you understand that yes. testimony will be allowed in court? Um, yes. Um, a testimony from the director of Elon, Mr. Ritchie, and from any of the hired professional people will not be allowed mm -hmm. but anything that was said to another to a friend or a you know a bunk mate or a, you know someone in the cafeteria line with them that type of thing can be used yes michael skakel was released from prison and is now a free man according to reports the state of connecticut does not plan to retry michael skakel for the murder of martha moxley due to insufficient forensic evidence Many of the original witnesses have now passed away. Many believe that had Michael Skakel not come from such a prominent family, the case never would have been dismissed, overturned, or ignored. Martha Moxley's killer likely still walks free, and her case remains unsolved, and justice for her murder has never been served. Martha would be 63 years old this year, but will remain 15 forever in the hearts of those who still remember her. Her father, who passed in 1988, never knowing what happened to his daughter. Dorothy, now in her early 90s, continues to keep Martha's murder case in the spotlight with the help of her son, John. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, 
please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.